All right. We are going to begin. So, the way we are approaching this series, for those of you who are visiting us, we've kind of been in somewhat of a relationship series. We talked about manhood. Actually, we talked about pornography. We talked about manhood and womanhood last week. And then tonight we're talking about singleness slash dating. Um, you know, and it's interesting because you, you, it's, hard to talk about, it's hard to talk about singleness without comparing it to unsingleness or, you know, whatever the opposite of that is. Uh, and, and it's kind of interesting. And so I want to start with this parable. It's kind of, a, it's kind of an old parable. Maybe you've heard it. Um, an older fish was swimming by and two younger, two younger fish were swimming up and the older fish said, that, said to the two younger fish, how's the water? To which the two younger fish kept swimming and said to each other, what is he talking about? Um, when, when it comes to talking about, I think, singleness and dating, there is this water that we're swimming in. And, and many of you have heard me say this and I feel like a broken record, but I feel like it needs to be said over and over and over. Like we are in a sex-saturated culture uh, where, where we have elevated romance and, and sex to the ultimate human experience. And that has a lot of implications to how we think about ourselves and how we think about others and how we, uh, how we live our lives. And so um, it, it's hard to talk about singleness without including and talking about dating and and what it means to be single and and the possibility of uh, being married someday and how some of you long for that and others of you you know aren't interested at this point and and all that's fine and normal and good so because we're in this sex saturated culture there's there's all kinds of stuff out there um it really is the water that we breathe in a lot of ways um it's everywhere it's 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 every show you watch it's advertising and marketing it's you know it's it's everywhere and so it's it's hard to kind of escape this uh, the the certain views that the that the culture is trying to convert you in did you know that you're being converted actually um, all of us are always being converted to something like none of us are just stagnant uh, stable you know unmoved people within ourselves like none of us have within us this ability to not let any outside forces influence us. All of us are being influenced. All of us are being converted. All of us are, in some sense, a slave to something. And so, um, it, you know, when, when you get into your late teens and, and, and 20s, your eyes begin to be open to a lot of these things. And it, um, it can be helpful to start to see what's, what's real. So my, I, I want to say this at the beginning, um, you know, my experience with this isn't all that extensive. In fact, you know, I was, I was kind of thinking about my life and I started dating when I was a, 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 a sorry, a junior in high school is when I started dating girls on a regular basis. So I had a couple girlfriends that were maybe one or two months and then, then I met a girl at the end of my junior year who I dated all the way through that summer, through my senior year, through my freshman year in college, and then we broke up at the beginning of my sophomore year in college, so almost two and a half years. And, and it was at that time, the reason I broke up with her is because I, I was 
submitting my life to the Lord and wanting to live for Him, and that relationship wasn't honoring Him, and so I ended it. And, and I, I spent the next six or seven months being single and, and really wasn't interested in dating. And I, was, I, was re- I was finally excited to just pursue the Lord and end up going to a Bible college. And then within two months of being there, I found myself hanging out with this girl named Ryan a lot. And within you know, a month after that, we were having this talk to kind of define the relationship, and we, which we both said, we don't really want to date. And we're like, okay, that's cool, me neither. And then the next morning, <laughs> the next morning we had breakfast together because she was sitting alone and I sat by her. And then the lunch, we had lunch together, and then it was like we spent almost every meal from that point on. We did the opposite of what we said we were going to do. <laughs> I, had, I had no willpower, apparently, at that time. So, so my, you know, we, we started dating and, and then we're married within a year and a half. Okay, so I got married when I was almost 22, right? So I figured up, like, the, the amount of years that I was, you know, dating someone or with someone equaled up to be, like, 23 of my 40 years, right? I've been married. It'll be 19 years this summer that we've been married. So, so I, I wouldn't say I'm, a, I'm not bragging, okay, Rachel? So, so anyway, I say that because, you know, I really do think that there is a crucial time in your late teens and early 20s when, when your eyes are being opened to the water in which you're breathing and, and, and you really can discover a lot of great things about who you are and community and friendships and all those things. And, and you know, for whatever reason, that, didn't, that, didn't, that's, that wasn't the route that I took. Um, so I say that because... I wouldn't consider myself an expert. I would say I'm someone now looking back and going, oh, wow, this is what I see. This is what was going on in me that I wasn't able to see then. This is what I see happening. And I also have a 15-year-old daughter, and I'm looking ahead a little bit and scared to death about, you know, what she's entering into. So, so that's kind of where I'm coming from. So this culture, this, this, this culture that's elevated this thing to, its, to a crazy height that it that shouldn't, shouldn't be at, is where we get books like Flirtexting. Um, Drew, yes, it's a real thing. Drew, uh, Drew apparently was, Drew is checking this book out. I'm not sure if he's going to order it or not, but he sent me a link to this book called Flirtexting, written in 2009. Yeah, that's a long time ago. I feel like that's a long time ago. Um, written in 2009 by two women, and here's the premise of the book. The premise of the book is, they, they had been realizing that like texting was taking over phone calls in terms of like boys calling them and inviting them to prom or asking them on a date. And so these, these ladies were like, I don't like this, but hey, if this is what's happening, then you know what we're going to do? We're going to take, take this over. We're going to write this book to teach women. The book is for women. This, the subtitle of the book is How to Text Your Way into His Heart. So, yeah, Drew, Drew is reading it. Yeah, Drew's reading it, totally. Um, yeah, that's how it goes. I stole the book from Drew's desk. That's how it goes. That's what it was. Um, so, so anyway, so this this book, it, you know, it, it's basically how do we how do we take and use texting? How do you you know send the perfect text to to get what you want? 
or to shut him down or whatever whatever the the need is at that moment it's it's a hilarious book there's a there's a at the at the back there's this appendix called flirtexticate you heard of this flirtexticate it's it's full of puns kelsey you would love it um anyway yeah yeah kelsey's one of the writers so another article that i read um, that was actually written by a sociologist studying the, the hookup culture uh, in America. It's called, this book is called um, American Hookup, in which she kind of studies, studies this hookup culture on college campuses. And there are several interesting things. So I read an article about the book. I listened to a podcast where this lady was being interviewed. And um, fascinating things, and I'll, I'll mention a couple of them that, st- that stood out to me. First one was that... Um, Basically, what they they proved was that millennials aren't hooking up more than previ- than the previous generation. Um, but what's changed is how how you think about it. And so, casual sex isn't taboo, but emotional intimacy is in this culture. Um, and in fact, maybe possibly even something to be ashamed of. Um, she talked about how hooking up is supposed to be the spontaneous thing. But what she realizes is there's all kinds of rigid rules that are associated with this culture because you can't let someone know that you're interested. You can't let anyone know that there's any sort of um, uh, vulnerability in this. And so it's not about romantic experience. It's about, um, it's about status. And it's about hook, hooking up with the right person that's going to elevate your status. And then um, in, that, in that case, it's, it's casual, it's care free and it's meaningless is, is kind of the goal. And so she talked about how they will go to great lengths to prove um, that they're not emotionally attached to their sex partners and in fact they care less than the other. So the game is um, you hook up and the first one, the, the one who can prove that you care the least about what just took place is the one that kind of has the upper hand. And the, and the one that, that shows any sort of weakness or vulnerability or, or desiring a further relationship or desiring more is the one that's kind of a loser. In fact, in this, in this culture, like what's taboo is, is bringing any sense of desiring a long-term relationship. If that happens, like you're, you're, you're blackballed. You don't want to be that girl or that guy that's wanting more from, from these partners. And, and in the podcast, there was an interview um, of a guy who was totally confused by this. He said... Um, he said, so there's this girl that I really liked, and she liked me, but she wouldn't have sex with me. But she was hooking up with somebody she didn't like, but the reason she wouldn't was because she liked me. The reason she wouldn't have sex with me was because she liked me, because that just complicates things. And so they'll go to great lengths to, to, to prove they don't care. One is by being drunk, because it's better to have drunk sex, because that way you're just, you don't care than it is to be sober. Um, the other is to not hook up with the same person more than twice because I might show that you like them. The other one is um, to immediately go to great lengths to show that you don't care about the person by demoting them in your life somehow, by proving to your friends that, that you can do this and be totally detached from this. And so the other interesting thing was that feminist groups kind of champion the hookup culture because it, 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 it allows, um, it's, it's liberating um, for women and, and it, it, it allows them to have as much control as the men, and so they like that. But what she was showing was that actually what, what they're doing is feeding a system that works against what they're about. She said that 
what they've discovered is women aren't, this is hello, women weren't meant, either are men, but women aren't meant to be emotionally distant from someone they have sex with. Uh, and she said that, that the author, or the author was saying that the benefit is disproportionately for men in this setting and not for women. It feeds, it feeds men and it feeds a particular kind of man uh, on campus, specifically white, male, wealthy, good-looking is, is who that's feeding. And that's kind of the, the enemy to the, the feminist groups in a lot of ways. So she said one, one this, she interviewed, interviewed this one girl on the podcast who feels trapped. She said, and I quote, girls know when they're being used and it feels bad to be used, but the alternative is that nobody wants to use you, and that's worse. Like the alternative to being used is no, not being wanted, and, and it's, it's better to be used and to use than it is to not be wanted, is, is kind of what she was describing. So uh, the author went on to talk about how this affects men in the same way, and because why? Because men are human, um, just like women. And so she said, she's describing this, and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about the, the fish in the, in the water. I'm going, this is a poison that, that many college girls and college guys are drinking or swimming in, breathing, and, and they don't know, and it's killing them. So the world, my part in tonight is just to kind of talk about the world. None of that stuff that I said is probably any, any news to you. It's probably something you, stuff you hear all the time um, um, from, from whoever, but, but what... What I, what I picked up from this is the world, the world says that singleness is a choice that I make so I can do whatever I want. So singleness is something that I choose to do so that I can get what I want. Um, it's something that I use for my own plan and purpose. So on one side of the spectrum, you have, it's my choice. In fact, the, the worst thing you could do today almost, because, because um, sex and romance have been elevated to this ultimate human experience, the worst thing you can do, the ultimate human right is to be able to have sex with whoever you want. So the worst thing you can do is, tell, is to sell, tell somebody they can't have sex with somebody else. Um, God seems to not care. He does that all the time. Mm-hmm. Throughout the Bible, tells tells all kinds of people throughout, from beginning to end who you can and who you can't. Um, but that's something that's really taboo in our culture tell somebody that they shouldn't have sex with somebody else. So that's, that's one side of the spectrum. It's my choice, and I use singleness for my plan and my purposes. Um, then, you have, then you have the other side of the spectrum, and sometimes the church can be guilty of feeding this side, this side of the spectrum, and that's that something um, that maybe has elevated marriage and parenting to to a status that, that makes young people feel less than if they're not married or have children. Um, this can be parents asking you, hey, have you found someone? Hey, what's, are you going to give me some grandbabies someday? Um, you, you probably haven't experienced that as much as maybe someone in their late 20s, early 30s has. Um, it, can be, it can be detrimental. It can be a challenging thing. I read an article um, on the Gospel Coalition called Turning 40 while single and childless, childless. And she talked about how, on one hand, the world is celebrating her and championing her independence. And yeah, yeah, you do whatever you want. If you want to be married, you get married. If you want to, but don't sell out. Don't change who you are. Don't, you know, 
don't um, become whatever. Use your singleness for your own purposes. And she's going, no, I don't, I don't want to do that. I, like, I, I'm, I want, I'm open to being married. I'm open to having children. Um, but it just hasn't happened for her. And, and then the other side is she's, she's going to church and the program. I mean, there's all kinds of subtle ways the church blows this for, some, for, for people in their mid to late 20s, sorry, mid 20s to mid 30s. It's a demographic that I think is probably the least um, reached demographic that, in the church. We, we, we just don't do a good job. Um, um, and, and there's all kinds of stuff for married couples and there's all kinds of stuff for um, parents, um, but, but not for somebody in their mid to late 20s after college. And, and so it's easy to feel like she's less than is what she was kind of describing in this culture. The other thing that she said that I thought was really interesting, something that I've thought about before, is I've wondered why. Because like I was immature. Like I look at my picture when I got married, and I, I don't even recognize myself. My wife and I talk about that all the time. We have a picture of us from our wedding day, and it's like we don't even recognize each other because I, there was so much I didn't know about myself then that I wish I would have known, honestly. Um, it took a long time to work through some of those things. But she said something. She said, you know, I, I've often wondered, maybe it's this flaw, or maybe it's that flaw. If this flaw was fixed, or if that flaw was fixed, maybe I would find someone. And she, she said, and then she would essentially meet someone or know someone who's married who has the same flaw. And she'd go, okay, well, so maybe it's not one thing. And so it, it just reminds me, like, that, like I, I, get the, I, I've, I get this question I think I had this question for a little while, um, but you know, how does this work? So, so if I stop caring about it, then God will. You know, so if I, okay, God, I'll stop caring about it. Is that is that, <laughs> is that is that how this works? If I stop looking, you'll provide. Is that what this? Um, and how does this work? Is it is it just something I'm just supposed to go through my life and only God has the one person for me, or? Or is it all up to me? I know, I, like, that's a spectrum in and of itself. And some people just go, ah, I don't know what to do. And others go, yeah, it's all up to me. I'm going to do it. It's, it's, you know, God's telling me I got to do it. And, and I think it's some mysterious blend of the two. I don't know. But the sub-Christian culture would say that singleness is something that I'm stuck in while I, until I get what I want. So I put over here, I'm stuck. Um, singleness is stopping me from my own plan and purposes. Whereas this one is, singleness is something I choose in order to get what I want. This one is, singleness is something I'm stuck in until I get what I want. And, and both of those are unhealthy. Like both of those are not the way God intended us to live. And, and both of those are disconnected from an idea that God is somehow sovereign in control and that I'm called to be content and and um, content with where I am, with where God has me. And, and that particular, that gift of being content where you are is something that will stay with you the rest of your life, no matter whether you're married or not. I know married people who don't want to be married anymore. And I know single people who want to be married. And so, um, so where are you on the spectrum? We're going to take a break, and, and Drew's going to come up and share some more.
Good man. All right, so um, there was in in getting ready for this talk tonight. Basically, there's kind of good news and bad news for me when it comes to, when it comes to preparing a lesson on singleness and dating. And the good news was that I had uh, that I actually wrote a sermon on this. That I preached a sermon just a few months ago at Sunnybrook on singleness. And, uh, and got to talk about it there. The bad news is that like a number of you go to Sunnybrook and, had, and, and were probably were there during that series when we talked about those things and heard singleness. And so I've been racking my brain for the last week going, man, I want to I wanna say something new. I want to say something different than the stuff that a number of you have already heard. Uh, but the more I've actually thought through it a little bit, the more I go, I, I actually I don't want to say something different. I, I think... Uh, as I studied and as I like read through stuff, I think what I was sharing was what God thinks of singleness. And so, as it's described in His Word, and so I don't want to say anything different than that. I want to say that, and so we'll do that. But I do also recognize that this is, we're in a more specific age group and a more specific time frame when we talk about singleness. There are all kinds of different singleness, uh, from widowed singleness to divorced singleness to uh, never been married in your 40s singleness to, okay, so there's, there's all kinds of different age, and you guys are in a specific group that is really thinking through things on dating and marriage and finding uh, someone that you might spend the rest of your life with. And so with that in mind, I also want to kind of address specifically where you're at. So here's what I want to do. I want to take 10 minutes to kind of basically give a summary of what I've said before, to, to give 10 minutes on this is what the Bible says about Singleness, and then after that, I want to give you five random thoughts on dating and singleness uh, for you to kind of take home with you. So, if you've got uh, your Bibles, go ahead and open up to First Corinthians seven. First Corinthians seven is the primary text in Scripture. If you want to know what what do we do with this issue of singleness, uh, Matthew nineteen touches on it. Jesus talks about it. That's what kind of led us to this. Uh, text in in like I don't know October I think is we were in Matthew 19 and so that led us to deal with things like divorce and marriage and singleness. Uh, Jesus talks a little bit about it there, but First Corinthians 7 really kind of spends more time on it than anywhere else, and even that is not a ton. Uh, we're not going to go all the way through First Corinthians 7 because actually Paul weaves singleness and the ideas about it kind of in and out of the chapter, and so we're going to hit on those specific texts that talk about it. But we are going to hit three things that I want to talk to you about. The first is um, what Paul's view, the Apostle Paul's view of singleness is. The second section we're going to talk about is the theological foundation for Paul's views of singleness. And then the third thing we're going to talk about are like the practical reasonings behind Paul's view of singleness. So we're in there. We'll start in 7. Just so you know, 7 starts with Paul talking about sex between a married couple and basically saying he's been talking about sex in 1 Corinthians 6, the chapter just before, and all the bad forms of it and all the points you want to avoid. And then he goes into 7 and he says, but I'm not saying sex is bad. In fact, I believe that a husband and a wife ought to be having sex because a husband's body does not belong to him alone. It also belongs to his wife. 
and a wife's body does not belong to her alone. It belongs to a husband. And so you ought to be coming together regularly for sexual activity, that you ought to be engaging in this. He says there may be a period where you take time aside for prayer and fasting, but I don't encourage it for very long because... We know the way that the devil get, tries to get a foothold in. And because of temptation, I want you always to have your eyes fixed back on one another. And sex is a key part of that. And so he talks about, this is what this looks like in marriage. And then that brings us to, in verse 7, what does it look like if you're not married? How do you go about your life there? He says, verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 7, I wish that all were as I myself am. What he means is single. Paul is single, so he says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So what does Paul say about singleness? Here's what he says, first and foremost, it is good. He says, to the unmarried and to the widows, I say to them, it is good that you are single. Lucky you, is what Paul says. Congratulations. I, I am glad for you that you get to be saved. It is good for you to stay in that state. Now, you need to understand that in Paul's day and age, for him to say something like this is crazy both from the Jewish background that he grew up in and studied in and lived in all his life and the Greco-Roman world that he is writing this letter into and that he does his ministry in, both of those things had little to no concept of a single person um, just kind of going about their adult lives without being married. That just wasn't really uh, known much. It was considered basically like a, a single man in Jewish culture was considered basically untrustworthy. There's something wrong with that guy. Why doesn't he settle down and get a wife? What's wrong with him? In, in the Roman world, several years earlier, Julius Caesar had declared that it was illegal to stay unmarried um, because they're trying to build up the population there and they want to make sure that everybody is doing that. And so even if you were a widow, if your husband died, you had two years to get married before they started fining you for doing that. And so there was, there was probably little, almost no one you knew going around, and there was like no such thing as a young woman just growing up and then just kind of leaving the house and striking out on her own to do those things. That's, that would be unheard of. And, and in this day and age, before our Western, modern, individualized world where all of us are kind of free to decide who we are, and to be who we ought to be, and to find our own path on our own journey, and whatever other Disney motto you can think of. Um, like, before this day, like, back then, like, your identity did not come from within yourself. Your identity, who you are, was found in the community that you were a part of. You didn't have significance apart from the community that you were a part of. Um, your family and your town and your neighborhood, that, that group of people was who you were. And so it was critical for you to make sure that you didn't go from your family to no family. You want to get into another family that is bringing your identity and that you are leaving a legacy through your offspring and, and that you are kind of passing your name down. So for Paul to say singleness was a good thing would have been um, revolutionary at that time. Uh, Paul does not see it that you are required this, that, that in order for you to be significant, in order for you to have identity, you need to be married or with someone. The question is, why? 
How is it that Paul can step in and say this in the middle of a culture like this, that it is good for you to remain unmarried and single? He explains a little bit more why as he gets down into verse 17. Now, heads up, what we're about to read, 17 through 24, will not mention the word singleness, but I think is the key passage in the scriptures for understanding singleness. So here's what he says in verse 17, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call circumcised Let him or uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. So here's what Paul's saying here. Whatever you were when you became a Christian, don't rush to try and become something else. Whatever you were, he says, remain as you are. And he starts with what would have been the key identity marker in the early church, and that is circumcision. The reason it was so critical and so important is because every good Jewish person was circumcised. Every good Jewish male was circumcised. That was the sign that you were part of God's people. And when the church first began, there was no such thing as a Gentile Christian. All they knew, like Jesus' disciples, the, the original 12, then 11, then 12 again, were all Jewish people. And all the other disciples around them were Jewish. And on Pentecost, when 3,000 people came to know the Lord, they were all Jews. And so all they knew was that Christians were Jewish people who followed the Jewish code like circumcision. And so this became a huge debate whether or not a person could even be a Christian if they were not a Jew. If, if they were a Gentile, they had to be circumcised as a way of saying, I now belong to God's people. I fit in the Jewish category. And so this becomes a huge, um, a huge issue. Now, Paul and other believers, like the, the leaders of the church, said, no, this is, this is not something that keeps someone out of the church. Jew or Gentile, you are a part of God's people if you place your faith in Jesus. But that didn't prevent a whole lot of people in the church from traveling around and saying, no, 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 circumcision matters, and it's one of the only things that matters. And so you had a number of people saying that you had to be circumcised, and then there seems to be a kickback of people almost boasting the fact of being not circumcised and making a really big deal about it. And here Paul comes and says the key identity marker that everyone is looking at in the first century doesn't matter. He says the only thing that matters is whether or not you're obeying the Lord, whether or not you're following Him. And then he'll move into another fairly big identity marker, and that is the idea of bond servants or slaves. Now, you need to know a couple things. One is that slavery was a little different than the, the concept you have in mind when you think of um, 1800s in America, where people were just owned and treated as cattle and that kind of stuff. It's, it's, it's different than that in ways that I don't have time to explain right now. But the second thing you need to know is that they estimate... I can't remember if it's Roman Empire or just Rome itself, that like a third of the population were slaves that a whole lot of the empire was, and, and we have evidence that a lot of early Christians were actually coming from the slave cat, uh, caste. And so uh, there's, there's a number of people kind of in the church, and this becomes a question too. Here's what Paul says, verse 21, Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when, when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. 
Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. And this section specifically is where we get the guiding principle for the whole chapter of Romans 7. So, Paul says in several places, remain as you are. Whatever you were when you became a Christian, remain as you are. Bummer for you guys, because you're all single, and so that's how you're supposed to stay, right? Um, that's not doesn't seem to be what he's getting at, because he actually says in verse 21, he says, if you're a slave and you have the opportunity to purchase your freedom, go ahead and do it. So he doesn't mean remain as you are as some sort of absolute principle. What he actually means, I think, is also in verse 27. Look what it's, or verse 21. Were you a bondservant when called? This is what he says. Do not be concerned about it. When Paul says remain as you are, I think what he's saying is to not be obsessed with trying to change your status as though what you need to really be a good Christian is this, or what you need to really be a whole person is this, or what you need to really be fulfilled is this. Paul says, forget all that. Do not get obsessed with those things. Listen, if you are a bondservant and you've gained your freedom, do it. But don't get all that wrapped up in it, and here's why. Paul says, listen, if you're a bondservant, know this, that your real identity is free in Christ. And if you are free, know this, that your real identity is a slave of Christ. And what he's saying is, slave or free, circumcised or uncircumcised, none of those things define you now. Christ does. For those who are a part of the church, for those who are Christians, Jesus is the major definer of who you are. And so this is why Paul, I think, is able to step into a first century culture that cannot fathom a life of singleness and say that it can be a good and right thing. Not just a good thing, he calls it a gift. This gift to to be able to stay single. The reason he can call it that is because singleness, he, he realizes, is not the thing that defines a person. Jesus now defines them. And so, because Jesus defines you, you're free to live out this Christian life in whatever way um, you see fit, in whatever way God has placed you in that spot. He says, don't be concerned about trying to change it. This is the, the danger of uh, titles or descriptions of status. And when I say status, don't get caught up. I don't mean like popularity or level or rank. I simply mean a description of the situation that you're in right now. So student is a status. That's, that's what you are. That's not a rank. That's, not, that's literally your status right now in life. You're a student, right? But there is a, really, uh, a real danger when we use, and, and we have to use them, right? I, I, we have to be able to talk about who we are, but the danger is when we take descriptions of our situations and our heart tends to turn those things into definitions of who we are. Um, whether that is a title or a status that I confer on myself or that other people have conferred on me, all of us have this really strong propensity to take those things, which are only saying, this is what you're doing right now, and they tend to turn it into, this is who you are. This is what makes you significant. This is why you matter. Student. Pre-med student. Minister. Um, Phylam. Beta. Um, Grad student. Engaged. All of these things are, 
are things that are, are simply just saying what you're involved in or what you're doing or what stage of life. But we turn all of those things into definitions of ourselves: Athlete, musician, married, funny, pretty, honor student, single. None of those words have anything to do with who you are. They're simply descriptions of what your situation is at this point. They do not define you and will not stick with you forever. Like, even in this life, most of those things won't actually stick with you. But we know this definitely, that in eternity, those things don't stick with you. I'm not saying that there's nothing to them. I'm just saying they are not all that important. Here's what Paul says in Galatians 3, 26-29. For in Christ Jesus... You are all sons and daughters of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is either slave nor free. There is no male or female. There is no married or single or phylam or beta or grad student or pre-med student. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now, Paul, listen. Paul still describes himself as a Jew. So he's not saying that that all goes away, that none of those cultural distinctions matter at all. He's just saying all of those things take a backseat to Christ and therefore none of them are used to define me over and against any other person. Because Christ in me is the main thing that matters about me and if you are in Christ, then Christ in you is what matters. Um, Over and above all these other things. Go to verse, uh, back to 1 Corinthians 7. Verse 32, here is the practical, so that was the theological foundation for for Paul's view of singleness. Here's the practical reasoning behind it. Paul says, what I want is for you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. Listen to this. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Here's what Paul says. Marriage, when you get married, that brings with it some very natural limits. Things that aren't bad or good, they're just natural. When you are married, your time now becomes limited. Your finances become limited. You cannot just spend them in any way you want. Your energy cannot just be devoted to anything that you want. There is another person that you have to think about. There's another person that you have to consider. And you have to be able to kind of devote those things to them. That's just natural. Um, But there's also actually some unhealthy temptations that come along with marriage and with uh, starting a family, things like an overemphasis on staying safe and comfortable. Um, Things like a natural tendency within us to turn ourselves inward on our family unit and, and to, in the process, kind of turn ourselves away from other members of the body of Christ to not be involved in their lives as much. Um, to, to mostly just care about what's going on here and to be thinking about this. This desire to make sure that everything is stable and smooth and easy for my family. Those things can, if I let them, get in the way of what Jesus may want to do in me or in my life. Um, 
Paul says this, that the goal is, his final word there, what I want to secure is your undivided devotion to the Lord. That is, by the way, a, a good question. Is that the phrase that I would use to describe my singleness? Undivided devotion to the Lord. That's what Paul says the goal is. That is the object. And marriage doesn't make that impossible. I don't think Paul says, if you get married, you can't really care about God. Or he can't be the main priority. I don't think he's saying that. But it does, Paul says, make it a lot harder. It makes it harder to be able to focus on those things. And this is why singleness is more than just good. It's a gift. Because we believe that there is nothing greater that we could have than God Himself. And a life given in service to Him. And singleness has a way of making that simple. Has a way of clearing away the clutter of the rest of life. And I have the freedom and ability to devote myself to Him and to service to Him. So that is what the Bible says about singleness. That is the view of it. In light of that, and some other kind of principles from Scripture, I'm going to give you five random thoughts about singleness and dating. All right? Five random thoughts. This won't cover everything, but that's why we'll have Q&A stuff afterwards. All right? Number one, singleness is not a period of waiting or limbo. Okay? It is not a phase of life that you are just trying to get through until you get to the real portion of your life, until you get to the point where you kind of grow up and enter real adulthood. It is okay, and you need to know this, it is okay to desire a wife or a husband. It is good and right, I think, to want to be married. It is not okay to believe that you're incomplete until you have one. It's not okay to believe that you're not fulfilled or that your real life has not begun until that has taken place. Um, one of the best words of advice in this was given to me um, like a week or two after I started dating Amy. And uh, it was given to me by this South African missionary who was kind of, I was meeting with at the time, was sharing some stuff with me, and I was asking him for kind of advice in like dating stuff. And he just said, listen, he said, at this stage in your life and with you entering a relationship with this girl, odds are that you do not have like a whole lot more time left as a single man. And so what he said is, do everything you can to take advantage of it. Like, use that time to grow in your devotion to the Lord. Use that time to grow um, in your knowledge of Him, to, to serve Him. Take advantage of it because a day will come when you won't have that anymore. And listen, both marriage and singleness bring with them um, benefits to helping us know God better, benefits to our sanctification. So when you get married, there are definitely things that help there. God uses marriage to sanctify you and to strip away your selfishness and to do a lot of those other things, right? So there are benefits to marriage, but the deal is for many of you, and, and not everyone in this room probably will be married. There's, there's a chance some of you won't, but many of you will, and those of you who will will probably be married soon, like in the next several years, which means there's advantages to singleness and marriage, and you've only got a small amount of time left to experience those ones of singleness. So, do not waste your singleness. Do not spend all your single years wishing that you weren't single, and then you look back and you realize that you wasted that time. Do not spend all your time wondering what's wrong with me, and, and moping and feeling bad, um, and getting distracted from things that are bigger and that matter. Um, by the way, when I say do not waste your singles, I hope you know I'm talking to all of you. Um, whether you have a boyfriend or girlfriend or engaged or not, you're still single. 
And so you still have this opportunity, even as you're dating, to have an undivided devotion to the Lord and to be free um, to devote your time and energy and efforts to the kingdom in ways that will be harder once you get married. So I'm talking to everyone when I say do not waste your singleness. Number two, single you will be married you. Okay? The person you are when you are single is the person that you will be when you're married. And that goes for the guy or girl that you like. The person that they single them will be the same person as married them. And here's what I mean by that is that um, marriage is not a magic thre- threshold where all of our temptations and our selfishness goes away and suddenly we become mature. <laughs> suddenly we grow up. Um, guys and girls, actually, I'll say both. Um, if you give in to lust regularly now, don't expect that when you get married, just because now I can have sex and now I can focus on sexuality in a healthy way, that that will go away. No, if you give yourself over to lust now, you will continue to give yourself over to lust after marriage. Um, I speak from experience to tell you that 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 does not just, those temptations do not go away um, just because you get married. If you are immature now, if you are undisciplined, if you do not um, seek to grow in your relationship with God now, you will not automatically change to some mature person who is growing and doing the things that you need to do to become more like Christ just because you got married. Um, Putting a ring on your finger does not mature you. If the guy or girl that you're interested in does not hunger for God's Word, does not serve now, why would you expect that to change once they get married? God can, as I said, use marriage to grow us. And if we'll allow Him to, He does. He uses our spouse to sanctify us and grow us up. But listen, it doesn't happen by magic. It happens through a lot of pain and hardship. And if you do not take advantage of the time you have now to grow, it will only make that more hard and painful once you get married. And it it can still be done. It can still make you more holy. It can still grow you. It's just going to be harder and cause a lot more headbutting with your spouse. Um, So don't expect um, that you can live a certain way now and then it will all be different once you grow up and get married. Um, Number three, when it comes to the physical side of dating, less is always more. The very common question in every dating class ever at every church camp ever is how far is too far? And the answer is less than you think. What you think, back that up a step or two. That's probably what too far is. Um, Physically, the world treats dating, and actually, as Scott mentioned, the world treats not even dating, um, as though it is marriage. On a physical level, people treat dating as though I can act with this person that I'm dating like I'm married to them. We can have sex together, we can sleep, or this person that I'm not even dating. We can treat that, like, so the the world treats um, dating and even not dating as though it's marriage, and that creates a ton of problems that I don't even have time to get into, but the issue comes when you divorce covenant benefits like physical intimacy like sexual intercourse when you divorce covenant benefits from covenant securities from covenant commitments it creates all kinds of issues of trust and problems within a person's life Um, and so there are a number of issues that come with this and so 
as Christians, I'm not saying Christians follow this, but Christians know not to do this. Christians know not to, that they're not supposed to be sleeping with anybody, even their girlfriend, even their fiance, before they're married. They know that. But Christians still actually treat dating as kind of sort of married. Like I can kind of sort of do things that you do when you're married, even if, I mean, we won't go all the way to that. Um, but I can kind of sort of like do those kinds of things, like making out and those kinds of, not a big deal, because we're, we're, we're dating, like we're an item, we're a couple, we're boyfriend and girlfriend, so we're kind of sort of married, but like there's actually, that category doesn't exist in the Bible. There are two categories in the Bible, um, married and then uh, brother or sister, okay? Paul tells Timothy, treat young women in the church as though they are your sisters, uh, that's, that, those are the categories that exist there. And so I've heard this before. Um, you know, how far is too far? Well, don't go any further than you wouldn't want somebody to go with your sister. Okay? Um, some would even reshape that to say, don't go any further than you would go with your sister. Right? <laughs> and, and I'm not going to put my like, full, yes, this is, thus saith the Lord, this is the word of the Lord. But actually, like, actually I think there may be something to that. Uh, that like there is somehow like just because it's normal like it's good for us to stop and ask why is it normal why is it that like we just kind of think that it's okay for people to make out with someone who's not their spouse Um, those kinds of things and so um, something that I think is at least worth um, thinking about I have heard a lot of people um, before they end up getting married and even after they get married say that they regret how far they went in their physical relationship, whether it was to sex or something close to it. They regret going too far. I have yet to talk to someone who's told me that they regret not going farther, right? Like I've never talked to anybody who's like, man, we should have been making out like bandits a whole lot more or something like that, right? Like I've never, no one has said, I wish we would have done this more in marriage. Okay, here's why. You want to know why? The reason nobody regrets restraint in their physical relationship, there are actually a few different reasons. The first is this. When you spend all your time only addressing physical issues in your relationship and when you just spend your time making out and doing all kinds of those things, it teaches you to talk way less than you should. Like it teaches you to not spend time engaging in conversation very often. Um, which, Which... hurts your ability to kind of know each other well. I mean, it's, but it's, it's kind of just true. Once you've started, like, engaging in more of a physical relationship, then when you have time one-on-one together, like, who wants to do boring stuff like talk when we could do other stuff, right? Um, but here's the thing, like, talking is so critical. I, I hate to burst your bubble, okay? But marriage is not one long make-out session, right? <laughs> It is not like some like sex marathon, okay? As much as some of you think that like once I get married, then nope, okay? That's not how it works all the time, right? So here's the thing. You will spend an infinite amount, uh, you will spend infinitely more time sitting on a couch talking, um, folding laundry on your bed, driving in a car, uh, cleaning around, doing dishes together. You will spend infinitely more time doing that than you will ever spend having sex. And so you probably ought to get good at doing that. And, and you probably need to be able to communicate well with your spouse in those things. Here's a second reason that a greater level of physical intimacy hinders you. 
the greater level of physical intimacy, the less ability to know whether this is someone you should marry. And this is partly because of the not talking thing that I just mentioned, because you're not spending much time getting to know them, but also because physical intimacy, sex especially, but even stuff near sex, creates what I'll call like a counterfeit intimacy. And I say counterfeit in quotes, not because there is like a real level of intimacy to it, but it is not rooted in something deep and real and lasting. It is, it, uh, sexuality causes us to feel really close to someone, even if on a mental and emotional and spiritual level we are not close to that person. And so it hinders our ability to even know whether this is someone that I ought to be marrying or not. Um, Third reason that being going too far physically can cause problems um, is that sex and other things like sex, when, whenever I push the boundaries of my physical relationship with my girlfriend, it teaches me to say yes to myself, which is the opposite of what makes a good marriage. Marriage is daily saying no to myself for the other person. Marriage is daily putting to death my own desires and my own wants in order to serve somebody else above myself. And if I make a habit going into marriage of only giving myself what I want, of only saying yes to myself, then I'm, I'm, I'm developing a habit that will work against a God-honoring marriage and will work against a healthy marriage. All right, number four. The church is essential for your single life, for your single-slash-dating life. And this is big in like all the stages of singles. I believe that the church is really important. So when you're not dating anyone, when you have no one, kind of no prospects, no one on the scene, you need the church to provide good friendships for you so that you will not enter unhealthy relationships out of loneliness or desperation. A lot of times, unhealthy relationships are just the result of someone really just wanting to have a relationship, wanting to have friends. So we need the church around us. We need to develop good, godly, life-giving friendships that prevent us from doing something dumb. Um, uh, Also, I'll say this. You need the church to remind you when you have no boyfriend and have no girlfriend, you will probably, and this especially goes for girls, um, you will, you will need the church because you need people who will remind you of the truth about who you really are. Because we have a tendency, as I said, to wrap ourselves up in what status we're in. And girls, going back to what Rachel said, will often think, the reason I am single is because I am not enough of this or I am too much of this. And the truth is, a lot of, a lot of times, neither of those things is true. And we need the church in our lives to be able to speak the truth about who we really are in Jesus. When you are dating, um, I'm sorry, let me go. When you start looking, when you're kind of at that place where you're ready to start dating and you're ready to start looking, the best place to find someone who is godly, growing, and serving is in the church. As I said, if, if, like, if they're not doing those things now, don't expect them to do it later. And so you need to be deeply involved in church. That's the best place to find someone. Um, who loves God in the same way that you do. Third, the third stage there, when you actually are dating someone, when you start and you have a boyfriend or girlfriend, you will need someone who is close to you. You will need people who are close to you to speak the truth to you about your relationship. Here's kind of what I always say. You are never more dumb than when you are in love. Right? You are never less objective about a person than when you're in love with them. 
And so you need people on the outside who can tell you whether or not this relationship is healthy, whether or not this is a person that you should actually be dating, whether this is a person that is worth marrying someday. Um, I, I read today, somebody said it like this, this is the golden rule of dating. Lean hard on the people who know you best, love you most, and will tell you when you're wrong. The golden rule of dating, lean hard on the people who know you best, love you most, and will tell you when you're wrong. When you're wrong. And I'll just say this. If you are dating someone and you don't want to ask any of your friends or your parents or older believers, hey, what do you think of our relationship? There's pro- that's probably a red flag in and of itself. Um, because you, you probably know what they think and you don't want to hear it. Um, so that in and of itself is a red flag. Number five. Fifth random thought about singleness and dating. You are loved deeply by God who pours out grace through Jesus' atoning work. Here's kind of the deal when we start to talk about this. I know that there are some of you in here who when we begin to talk about dating, um, you have made some really, really big mistakes. And those really big mistakes come with some really, really deep regrets. And so even the, the topic itself can be difficult for you to sit and listen to. And you may find yourself wondering if there is ever any hope for someone as broken and as messed up as you. If there's ever anyone who could love you. Or if there's ever any sort of healthy relationship that could come together out of the mess that you've made with your life or with your past. And, and you need to know that you are loved deeply by a God who is in the business of redeeming and restoring us. So what he does, that all of us are a huge mess. And, and what God is doing throughout our entire lives is taking the mess that we've made of our lives and restoring it and redeeming it and making it something new. And that's not a promise that everybody's going to find someone to get married to. That's not the promise. The promise isn't, don't worry if you messed up, you're still going to find that lucky someone. No, the the promise is, don't worry if you messed up, whether you ever find anyone for yourself or not, you are deeply loved and cherished by a God who is bigger and better than any marriage could ever be. So you need to cling to that truth and know that truth about yourself and know that truth about Him. All right, I don't know what time we got. Okay, we got some time. Um... Scott, Rachel, you want to come on up and we'll open stuff up to questions? I don't know if anything else has come in. Okay. By the way, if anybody is, is interested in a book that um, <laughs> could really help with this, we found this in the in the library over there. This I think I think this came with the ha- with the house. It says it says Christian ways to date go steady and break up. 
Going steady. What's that? Oh, I don't know. What do you think? Okay. Yeah, I, yeah, I did. Um, okay, we get, we actually got some questions through the text that are that are really good. And I to get to all because I want to make sure you guys can, while you got stuff on your mind, can kind of ask them, and we can get to some of these later. Let me let me get to this real quick. Um, are all sexual sins the same? The Bible says that even a man who looks at a woman with lust is committing adultery in his heart. So do we minister to and respond to people struggling with all sexual sins the same way? Or is there a difference between someone struggling with lustful thoughts versus masturbation versus using porn versus struggling in a relationship versus having sex? Is a lustful thought really the same thing as having sex outside of marriage? Um, the answer I give to that uh, briefly is no, they're not all the same. So Jesus comes and says, you have heard that you should not even look at a woman with lustful intent in your heart. But I say to you, uh, I'm sorry, that you should not commit adultery. Sorry about that. Um, that you should not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What Jesus is saying is not everything is now the same and everything is on the same playing field. But what Jesus is actually saying is I'm raising the bar now. And I'm calling you to, yes, adultery is bad. I'm calling you to not, um, to not just settle for that, but to go beyond that and to go into something greater. And so Jesus would say that there is a difference between those things. And adultery is a worse thing. And, and struggling with lust, um, struggling when you're watching a movie with your friends, PG-13 movie, and there's some skin there, and, and struggling with that and trying to make sure you're not getting into those things is not the same as somebody sleeping with their girlfriend. And so we do handle those things differently. That's not, again, Jesus has set the bar high. And so Jesus doesn't say, so it's therefore okay to lust after something you see in a PG-13 movie. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, no, do not sleep with your girlfriend because you're using her and taking advantage of her. Do not sleep with your boyfriend because you're using him and taking advantage of him. You're not honoring what God has set in place for you. But even more than that, don't look at people with lust either because you're using them in your mind and in your heart. And so they are different, and we address them differently as a church. Um, we work through those things differently when we're doing pastoral ministry with those, with those persons. Um, but we're all striving towards holiness and all of those things. So, um, we, Any questions kind of on your mind right now? Hi. So the question being, how do you, 
how do you gracefully respond to people who, well-meaning, say kind of disparaging things about singleness? And how do you how do you how do you talk to people about that? Because we do a lot of unknowingly and even trying to do is right, like we sometimes do damage with our words, you know? Anything you guys would, would say on that? I think I think even just explaining your heart a little bit to them, like what Drew was saying about trying to really use, you know, make the most of my singleness, you know, that I can really focus my attention, you know, um, on God and be that single for a time or single for my life, you know? Um, and, I, and I think, you know, it... Not that you have to say something every single time, you know, but if you notice that somebody's really not being considerate in that way, you know, even just a heart-to-heart of, you know, here's some ways you could be praying for me and um, just being honest with them, you know, about that and, and even about some of, you know, I think, I think even you can honestly and lovingly say, I'm sure that you don't mean, you know, to, to, for these comments to be hurtful, but I kind of wanted to let you in, you know, on a little bit of where I'm coming from. Um, and I, I firmly believe that the Bible teaches us, you know, that, I, that I'm not incomplete by being single, that God is the one that fills me. And so, um, anyway, I think you can do it that way, and I think that, I think that you can do it in a loving way. And I think um, there, there is a lot of, I think, bad theology and misconception in the church. And so, again, not that we have to correct it every single time, but... Married people are clueless. I mean, I mean it's just true. I mean, married people are... They, they they hang out with married people. They think married things, and so it's like, uh, does uh, it doesn't compute? I don't, you know. And so you want to, I think I think married people want to be encouraging, and they just they just don't know. They've been disconnected from that for so long, you know. Yeah. So I would say, you know, I think I would say grace. something. I think I would say something along the line. Somebody says, "Don't worry in God's timing." I think I would say, "You don't have to, you don't have to pretend like." Um, you're fine, and I don't need anybody, and I'm, you know, right? I think, I think you can say something along the lines of, you know, they say, don't worry, one day God will provide. I think you can say, he might or he might not, but I'm learning that he's enough. Like, not, not like, I don't need anything, but I'm learning that he's enough, you know? And I'll just say this real quick. Um, if you experience those comments, like, remember those, and remember what it is like to, to be single and not feel like I know how to be, like, um, because, because as married couples, we want to be the kind of married people who include the whole church well and do those things. So remember that. Any other questions? I, I've, I'm getting okay, all kinds getting of okay. joke questions <laughs> that I can't. And then serious ones, I'm trying to decide this, this which one's serious. Okay, you go for it. Okay. Hello. Is it, is it possible to be too spiritually intimate with someone who you are dating? Yes. Or is that okay? Is it possible to be too spiritually, so we know not to cross certain lines physically, is it possibly, possible to be too spiritually intimate? Um, I have thoughts, but if you guys, if you guys have thoughts first. Uh, well, I mean, based on kind of this idea that it's, you know, brother, sister, husband, wife, you know, there's two categories. Um, I, I don't think, you know, we get, I, we've had this question a bunch, how... How should a, a guy lead his girlfriend, or should a girl, guy lead his girlfriend spiritually, and all this stuff? And and I don't think so. I I, I mean I, I think I think it's two people who should be chasing after the Lord, and and their focus should be on Him, and 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 God has maybe allowed them to run next to each other, and so you can get to know each other on that level um, until it gets more and more serious. And I think 
but but I think not until it's husband and wife do you start to figure out how how does this work? How do we grow spiritually together? How do we encourage each other? How do we you know how does he lead her you know in that sense? And I think I think you wait until then. And because what Drew and I have talked about this is interesting. I don't know if we've talked to you about this or not. Maybe we should have before I said this, but um, <laughs> so. Well, sorry, it's going to happen anyway. Um, what we've noticed is girls that can be spiritually strong and independent and, and chasing the Lord will get married and then just kind of relax and just go, okay, I don't have to do that anymore. I'll let him do it. And and I think, you know, and I, th- I think that's kind of interesting, you know. And, and some of it is kids and, and there's all kinds of, other distractions that that come into play that kind of help with that but i think it's it's a reality and vice versa too i think guys that are like trying to impress the girl by growing spiritually and then like once they get in it's like yeah, yeah. she she's way more knowledgeable than than i am i'm just going to be the provider and that happens to guys too and i think there is so i think you know if 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 you're both seeking the Lord and encouraging each other to seek the Lord, then you're wanting to see that. Yeah, let me and let me speak to that because I, I, uh, Scott and I kind of view things the same way on this. But I've recently kind of stepped back a little bit from this. I used to say, yes, you really need to be careful about how spiritually intimate you are because that can lead to other things. And and while that can be true a little bit, there's there's some level in which like I hope girls with your girlfriends that you are really spiritually intimate and open with them that like you're, you're growing with them and and I really do believe that dating is like a friendship and so if they're your Christian brother or sister I hope you are one of the ways one of the only ways to know if you're getting a dude who's just gonna like tank or back out once you get married on his spiritual life is to be somewhat open and honest in your relationship so I think that you can grow close spiritually I think that you can um, I think that you need to be wise with how far along you are in your relationship. So at the front end, it's not like every bit of you is known to this person. But as you, I mean, when you're getting, when you're approaching getting engaged and you know you're going to get married, that person ought to know um, what your relationship with the Lord is like and ought to know daily kind of how you're working through things and stuff. And so there ought to be some of that. One, of the, I think one of the problems when we say, you know, people, couples who spend a lot of time praying together or doing devotionals together or whatever you know make themselves open to temptation and stuff and I think practically one of the reasons is because they're spending a lot of time alone right and that's just not smart um, that, that things ought to be done more in community and in public and those kinds of things but um, but I really do believe there's a place for you to, to grow spiritually with one another um, or, or to be very, at least, open and honest and intimate about your spiritual life and your walk. But you just need to be wise with how far along you are in the relationship when, when you're doing that. So, and that's where the community comes into play, right? So, because your question is, okay, so when, when, at what point am I able to start talking through this stuff? And I what? And I can't answer like one blanket question. This is where you need older, wiser believers in your life to help you kind of navigate that. I agree with all those things, but I would also add, as you're getting to know each other, hopefully a lot of that is happening in community, and when we are pursuing God with all of our hearts, the things that we are learning about Him and our love for Him spills out in our conversation naturally, 
And that is a safe place for a lot of those things to be happening where you can really see, you know, wow, that person is growing or, or I see such a servant heart in them or those types of things. Questions? There's another one. Um, I'll ask it. How much should we invest in our friends' relationships? Um, if, if maybe we don't, I guess it's kind of coming from a perspective, if we don't feel like it's a, a healthy one, how much should we intervene and step in? You guys have thoughts? How, how much should we step in to involve ourselves in our friends' relationships with other people and yeah, stuff? Yeah, if, if we see it's not healthy or gotcha, if we see it's gotcha. not good or how much should we... I, I, yeah, I think as, as hard as it is, I think... Again, it kind of depends on the level of unhealth, kind of like, oh, I clash with your girlfriend, and so that's not necessarily i got to step in and break that up, right? Um, but, but, like, I mean, I know, I had, a, I had a college friend, I had a friend in college who, uh, who got engaged to a girl, and this all happened, he was younger than me, and so it was the year after I left, this all happened when I was overseas and I wasn't there, but um, he started dating a girl, and it was just clear that it was not a healthy relationship, and not just dating, they were engaged, they had a date set, they were getting like they were getting gifts already in. She had already, I think, ordered dress and stuff. And and as hard as this was, and as yeah, difficult and painful as this was, there was a group of, of our friends who saw this and saw that it was not a relationship and knew that they had to say something. And so they pulled him aside, knowing that it might even risk their own relationship to him, depending on how he responded, and said, Brother, we just want you to know. Like, when we watch you with her, like, you, you're not, this is not healthy. You're not growing. You seem to be constantly stressed. You seem to be constantly angry, distracted from kingdom things. And, uh, and fortunately, he heard that well and actually broke off his engagement with this girl and, and at a late point in it. But, I mean, I think, I think we owe that mm -hmm. to, to our brothers and sisters if we see something. And, again, this is something that group, by the way, didn't just go, we don't like her. They actually went to another friend who was a few years older and already married and said, are you seeing the same thing that we're seeing? Is this just us being like, we don't like her? Or is there, like, do you see this? And so they went to someone else, too, to kind of seek advice before they did this. Mm -hmm. But, man, I, I think that that guy would, would credit those friends with, with in some ways like saving his life, uh, you know what I mean? Helping him dodge a bullet. Uh, I think we owe that. So. That she doesn't think the girl's not listening to this. I hope she's not. Listening. So. No, I, I think you should. I think you, if you if you love and care for somebody, you should be able to share what you're what's con, what you're concerned about, um, especially if you've prayed about it. And so, and it should be heard from that. And 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 I think I think you yeah should should be able to voice those things. Abby. Abby. <laughs> um, okay, so talking about leveraging your singleness to grow as much as you can, do you think it's just kind of like in general grow as much as you can, or are there like specific things that you should definitely develop? Okay. Are there specific, more, we say leverage your singleness for growth, um, but are we just talking in general, just try to grow a lot more, or are there specific, are you saying like, are there specific areas we should try to be developing before marriage? Okay. I, I'll let them answer this too, but I'll just say I think you need to serve as much as you possibly can. As somebody who, you know, is married to someone in ministry and having two little kids, 
Um, you know, my time is not as much as, you know, I, I, I am doing things that matter for the kingdom for sure right now. Um, but I'm also really thankful for, for the time before I had kids where I was able to throw myself, um, you know, in, into, into ministry and pouring into the church. And I'm doing what I can right now, and I'm, I'm grateful for that, and the Lord's helping me be faithful. And when, as my kids get older, I'll have more time. Um, but, but if you do enter that season of taking on more responsibilities and day-to-day things that you're kind of in that place, I would say, man, pour yourself out. In service, that's what I'd encourage you to do. Um, Morgan is a great example of of someone who uses her uses her singleness. Um, who came and spoke here last week? She just really does a good job of um, serving people well and being involved in church and stuff. And and in regards to what specific things will prepare you better for marriage, I really do think. The general things that we ought to do as Christians, like like serving and trying to put um, my focus on other people and not my own self, and um, which it's just easier when you're single. It's just easier to um, you've got your own schedule, mm-hmm. you've got your own free time, you've got your own money. It's just easier to do stuff for yourself and with yourself in mind, and so it, it is a little bit harder to kind of break out of that, but. Um, but that's why things like serving in the church and finding ways to do that stuff. I think when we do the general things that help us grow as Christians, those are the best things that prepare us for marriage. So, yeah. Well said. All right. It's 9.35. Okay. Um, we'll try and get to some of these in a couple weeks. Uh, next week we talk about marriage. And, uh, and you got the uh, blue card, if you wouldn't mind making a, getting those at least up on this coffee table or up on this table or somewhere close where, we, where they don't get lost on the floor. Yeah.